If you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, go ahead and flip to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John is almost at the very end of the Bible. If you go all the way to the end, you hit Revelation, go back to the left a little bit, you'll come through Jude and a couple of other Johns, and then you'll get to 1 John, where we're in chapter 5. If you don't have your Bible, just go ahead and open that up on your phone, and I'll be reading the entirety of this chapter for us this morning. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept humans te human testimony, but God's testimony is far greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray that God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Joe's already prayed for our time in God's word, so let's dive in and see what John would have for us in this today. You know, I've so much appreciated Dave and uh, Herb and Jordan, especially Jordan taking two weeks in this series, and Ben Hansen coming and teaching through 1 John with us. And it's been interesting to look back over the ground that we've covered in these weeks and see the ways that John, in his writing, keeps coming back to some of the same things. Have you noticed that John gets a little bit repetitive in some stuff? He keeps coming back to love. 
He keeps coming back to belief. He keeps coming back to knowing truth. He keeps coming back to identifying and dealing with sin. And as we've been going through 1 John, I don't know how this, if this is how your brain approaches Scripture, but I'm trying to break it apart and parse it out and line it up. I'm trying to understand it by taking these things and putting them in their own little categories and figure out how they fit together. Anybody else try to do that with Scripture? Yes, at least some. Thank you for raising your hand and leaving me not alone. I appreciate that. Um, and I realized, especially as Ben pointed out to us two weeks ago, John just doesn't write like that. John's writing isn't linear. He's not like Paul where he has little building blocks and he puts the first block down and then the block on top of that and the block on top of that and he builds what he's trying to build. John's writing is like a circle. It's cyclical. Neat little boxes that fit together aren't his style. They're not his goal. And in fact, just the opposite. John's goal is to convey to his readers and to us today that there are some aspects of the Christian life that can't be separated, that shouldn't be separated. And the primary elements that John is spinning together in this letter and in this chapter are the are belief that Jesus is the Christ, loving God, and loving others. Specifically loving the brothers and sisters or others who also believe that Jesus is the Christ. Time and time again in his book, John comes back to these three things. Belief in God, belief that Jesus is the Christ, loving God, loving others. And he spins them together in such a way that we can't tease them back apart. So for instance, the first two verses of this chapter of chapter 5. And the ESV captures this connection even a little bit better, I think. So I'll read from that. The ESV says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. This isn't a writing style that we can tease apart. This is a writing style where John is circling around some things, spinning them together, allowing them to build on themselves again and again. John says, believing that Jesus is the Christ means that you're born of God. And here in these verses, verses 1 and 2, he says that, as he has said before, we can only really know that we love God when we love everyone else who has been born of him. Okay, that makes sense out of verse 1. But then in verse 2, John flips it and says that we only really know that we love other believers when we love God. And he adds, loving God and obey his commandments. And the interesting thing is, we've got a break at the beginning of chapter 5, but John didn't write that break in there. And right in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 21, the commandment is loving brothers and sisters. So even in verse 2, when John is referencing the commandment, he's not referencing something different. He's really circling back around again. So which is it, John? Do we know we love God when we love the brothers and sisters? Or do we know we love the brothers and sisters when we love God? John would say, yes. That's the point. You can't separate them. You can't take them apart. John's getting at the fact that believing that Jesus is the Christ, loving God, 
And loving the brothers and sisters is all tangled up and spun together. It's not in a jumbled manner, but it's to- it is totally uh, interwoven and interconnected. You can't ignore any one of those three and have it still work. So as we come to this concluding chapter of John's letter, the image that kept coming into my mind was something spinning and swirling and building on itself. It's almost like a tornado or a hurricane, but not spitting out all sorts of stuff that's bad and death and destruction, uh, spitting out good stuff. And I know it's a little random. This is, I guess, kind of how my brain works. But the image that came into my mind is a cotton candy machine. Because if you think about a cotton candy machine, what you have is you have this thing in the center, right? And the thing in the center is spinning around and there's a little coil in there and you put some sugar in it. And let me just show you. So if you think about a cotton candy machine, now, first of all, let me acknowledge a couple things. First of all, I have separated the congregation now into two groups. One group is saying, what is he doing? The second group is saying, ooh, cotton candy, I want some. Can I have some? Also, there's this other group that's trying to show with their face that they're in the what is he doing category, but really they want some. So I think the only one that's wondering what we're doing is, are the dentists in the congregation. Also, let me just say quickly that um, there's a non-zero chance that the smoke alarm is going to go off here. Okay, I see Barb in the background. So Barb, if it goes off, just stay seated. We'll be all fine. But anyway, in a cotton candy machine, you need three elements all coming together. First, you need sugar. It's fancy looking sugar, but it's really just sugar. And I think of the sugar as belief. Belief that Jesus is the Christ. And you have to start with that. And the sugar goes into this thing here in the middle. And this thing here in the middle spins around and gets hot. And as the sugar hits the edges, it melts because it's hot. And then it gets pushed all the way out to the outside of the bowl. And what you get is this wonderful, sticky confection of goodness. And you don't get the goodness without all three. If you try to take any one thing away, if you don't have the sugar and you just have this hot spinning thing in the middle, then all you have is a hot spinning thing in the middle. If you have a spinning thing, but it's not hot, You're just going to get sugar flying out all over the place and it's not going to do you any good. If you have a bunch of heat, but it's not spinning, all you're going to have is a bunch of burned sugar. Anybody want a bunch of burned sugar? No. What do we want? We want cotton candy, right? And in the same way that we get the delicious, yummy cotton candy when we have all three, in John's Gospel, there's all sorts of things that spin out. Anybody want this? That spin out because we have all... Come on, kid. You can come on up. That spin out because we have all three things. And we like to think that maybe we can get some of the good things that John is promising and talking about without all three. But we just can't. We have to have belief that Jesus is the Christ. We have to have a love for God that's... Not real pretty. We have to have a love for God, and we have to have a love for other people. If we leave out any one of those three, the whole thing falls apart and quits working. 
If we think that somehow we can get the good results that John is talking about without truly believing that Jesus is the Christ, we're deceiving ourselves. We're missing the whole point. If we think that we can get the good things that John is talking about without really loving God, we're deceiving ourselves. We're missing the whole point. And lastly, if we think that we can get the good things that John is talking about without loving others, we're deceiving ourselves. We're missing the point. If we want the good that spins out of what John is talking about, we have to have all three. We have to have belief. We have to have love for God. And we have to have love for others, specifically the brothers and sisters. And then you get this wonderful, sticky, cavity-causing, sweet confection that's just, let's be honest, yummy. And kids, when we're done, you can come on up and get some. That'll be great. Wow, that is a little messy. Now, I know there's a danger here. I know there's a danger that a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks from now, you're going to say, wow, remember that sermon when Brent made the cotton candy? That was crazy. What was he talking about again? Right? Just like when you're telling your friend about that funny commercial. In my eyes. Seriously. Um, When you're telling your friend about that funny commercial, you know, where the guy's talking to the moose or whatever, and your friend says, oh, yeah, what was it for? Yeah, I don't remember. But it was a hilarious commercial. We don't want that to happen here today. But we do want to drive home to our heads and to our hearts what John has spent five chapters driving home to us. That believing that Jesus is the Christ, truly loving God, and truly loving others, especially the brothers and sisters, are three things that cannot be separated, cannot be parsed apart. You cannot have one without the others. And if you think that you can get the benefits of what John is talking about, apart from all three, you're deceived. So I wonder, which one of these do you try to most often separate out in your own life? Is it believing that Jesus is the Christ? Maybe you're happy to love God. Maybe you love this spiritual heart connection with him and you even strive to love others, but you'd rather leave out the solidity, the the solid nature of believing that Jesus is the Christ. See, when Jesus is the picture of a forceful reminder of sin, Jesus reminds us that sin is a real problem. He wouldn't have had to come. He wouldn't have had to die but for the reality of sin. When Jesus reminds us of that, when Jesus is the picture that we don't get to simply live our lives however we want, but rather we have to recognize that not only is he our Savior, he is our Lord, and we follow and obey him. Sometimes it can be easy to try to, uh, I'll love God, I'll love people, but I'd rather leave it a little squishy and leave Jesus out of it can be tempted, ten, tempting 
to try to carve that piece out? Or for you, are you happy to believe that Jesus is Lord and explore that and study that and proclaim it to others and you're happy to love others because he tells you to, but you're not really comfortable with the idea of loving God perhaps? From these three things, is that what you try to skip over? Uh, You try to skip over the deep, heartfelt love that Scripture would draw us to? God doesn't want cold, soulless people just simply acquiescing to his commands. But he desires for us that we would really love him. Not just obey him. And really loving God is a task that involves not just our mind and not just our strength, but our souls and our bodies as well. You know, this is probably the one where I find myself most often tripping up. It's easier for me to study God than to truly love Him. And I know the two can't be separated. I know they have to go hand in hand. But studying God, trying to understand Him, trying to be able to teach about Him, that's what comes naturally to me and seems to make the most sense to me. Honestly, sometimes seems the most useful to me. So I have to continue to work to not only know God, but to love Him. To quicken the affections of my heart so that I'm not only ready to think about God's love, but that I can also respond to Him with warmth, with depth of soul. Is that something that you have to work at too, perhaps? Or are you happy to love God if it means you can carve out loving others? I so appreciate that John makes it so clear that we simply cannot love God without loving others around us. If there is one thing that we take from our study of 1 John, let it be this. We cannot love God without a demonstrated, active, lived out love for those around us. Do you set aside the necessity of loving others in your own life? Thinking that it's enough to know God, to believe in Christ, and to love God. Believing Jesus is the Christ, loving God, loving others, all necessary. And when these three things are present, all sorts of good things are the result. Just like in the cotton candy machine, the goodness spins out of the three things in the middle. We've seen that throughout the book. We see it again in this chapter. And this list isn't necessarily exhaustive. I'm sure as you read this chapter, as you read through the book, you will pick out other things that spin out of these three things in the center that are good results of believing that Jesus is the Christ, loving God and loving others. But here are some that I see in this chapter. First of all, verse 4. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. That's a pretty great promise. I mean, who doesn't want to overcome the world? Who doesn't want victory? I don't know anyone who walks around and is like, yeah, I kind of like losing. I don't don't know. If I had to pick, I'd rather be defeated than come out on top because I just want to lose. I don't know anybody like that. Do you know anybody like that? No. We want to overcome. We want the victory that overcomes the world. We want to win. That's what John is telling us here. He's telling us that 
Everyone born of God overcomes the world. So that sounds like a pretty great promise. What do we want to overcome? We want to overcome obstacles and barriers. Sometimes those challenges, sometimes those obstacles or barriers might be competing ideas. Sometimes uh, they're other people. Sometimes they might be our enemies. And against any of these things, no matter what we're coming up against, we want to see victory. We want to overcome. We want to prevail. We want to defeat them. We want to show that we're more powerful. We, by nature, want to win. And time and time again, our culture around us tells us that the way we win is to make sure that we have more power, more money, more followers, more friends in positions of authority, more clout, more good ideas than those that we want to overcome. We believe that power is the way we overcome, so we want more of it. That's what our world would tell us. So Lakewood, this is where we've got to ask ourselves, do we really believe our Bibles? Verse 5 says, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. What did we just see about believing that Jesus is the Son of God? What did I just get cotton candy all up in my hair to to remind us of? That believing that Jesus is the Son of God cannot be separated from loving God. And loving God cannot be separated from loving others. Friends, do we, do we want to overcome? Then according to John, according to God's word, we must love. Do you want to overcome those who differ from you? Do we want to overcome those who would trash scripture and set aside its instructions for us? Do we want to overcome those who would belittle, question, or limit our ability to practice our faith? According to Scripture, we do not overcome through power. Not through financial power. Not through social power. Not through intellectual power. Not through political power. Or any other means. According to Scripture, those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God Overcome by love. So let's ask ourselves this morning, friends, and God, would you help us examine our own hearts? Do we love those who are different from us or disagree with us? Do you love those you disagree with? Those who are of a different race, perhaps, or nationality, those who are in a different economic level, those with a different theology, or maybe an entirely different religion, those who will vote for that guy in a couple of weeks, whoever that guy is for you, do you love them? Before you answer that question, let's think for a minute from 1 Corinthians about Scripture's Definition of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. 
It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Do you love those you would seek to overcome? Scripture promises that we will overcome. It requires that we do so through love, not through might. We can move on to verses 6 through 10 and see another good thing that spins out from this center of belief and love. Uh, I love what one commentator said about these verses uh, that talk about the water and the blood. The commentator said, This passage was no doubt clear to the original audience, but unfortunately is somewhat obscure to us. That's honest. Because this is obscure. We're not exactly sure what to do with this. We're not exactly sure of what John would be saying to us here. But we can see this. We can see clearly that a result of belief and love is knowing truth. Regardless of what the clear original meaning of this water and blood comment is, it's not obscure that the testimony of God is true. And if we're willing to rely on what we hear from people at times, however fallible they might be, how much more should we rely on what God says about what is true? That's what John is driving home for us here. This is a result of believing in Christ. When we believe in Christ, we know the truth. How interesting that knowing truth in John's writing isn't necessarily what drives belief, but rather it is the belief that produces the ability to know truth. There's a clarity that comes as a result of believing in Christ and loving others. And on the flip side, if we don't believe the testimony about Christ, and and by extension, if we're not loving God and loving others, John reminds us here that we're in fact making God out to be a liar. That's something we just don't want to do. A a third result in verses 11 through 15 is this idea of eternal life. And John here is giving us assurance of heaven and so much more than that. We were created for fruitfulness. We were created for fullness of life. And that was broken by the fall. That fullness of life that we were intended for was broken when Adam and Eve sinned. But the promise remains for those who believe and for those who love that we can step into eternal life. Not fully realized now. No, our best life is always yet to come for the believer. But there is a promise that for those who love Jesus, we are in his kingdom even now. We have a participation in eternal life even now. And that will be fully realized when Christ returns and sets all things right. 
one of the amazing promises that we have spinning out of the center of belief and love is eternal life for those who are in Christ. And verses 16 and 17, another promise. We have fellowship with other believers. The situation that John is describing here in verses 16 and 17 is a situation where believers are looking out for one another. We remember that we don't have to do life alone. We don't have to follow Christ only in our own strength and in our own power. John is describing what happens when the family of God is looking out for one another, is praying for one another, and helping one another in this ongoing project of belief and love. When you sin and you know it, when you've blown it, Don't you want what John is describing in verses 16 and 17? Other believers to come around you, to lift you up, to pray for you, to remind you of God's goodness and grace, and to point you back again to obedience and life. There is a depth of fellowship that John describes throughout this letter that is on display again here in these verses. That comes from belief and love. The Christian life is a group project. And when we are with others who are also committed to believing that Jesus is the Christ, who are also committed to loving God and loving one another, one of the results is a deep and a life-giving fellowship. And finally, in verses 18 through 20, We see a number of different things that are overlapping in those verses that are good results of the belief and love. But we see uh, that one of the main things is freedom from sin. How fitting that John would loop all the way back around to a theme that he had in the beginning of his letter in chapter 1, reminding us that we need to be free from sin. And not only forgiven of sin, not only cleansed of the guilt from sin, but also free to walk away from it. John reminds us that one of the most needful and also beautiful things about coming to Christ is that we're able to be free from sin. And that is made all the more beautiful when we think of the sin in our lives and when we remember the destruction caused by our sin. When you think of the hurt that you've caused, when I think of the damage that I've created from times that I wasn't free from sin, when times from times when I went into sin instead of away from it. Freedom from sin might not sound quite as attractive when we forget the horrors of sin, but when we remember how awful and how destructive sin truly is, this promise of freedom from sin is seen as beautiful and as a gift. So then we come to the end of John's letter. And we read verse 21 where John closes with, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And we might be scratching our heads a little bit saying, John, that seems like kind of an abrupt, odd closing. I mean, even the verse before, He is the true God and eternal life. That sounds like kind of a better closing. Is this like a postscript of some kind or what? What's going on here, John? When I think about the idea of the centrality of all that John has written, being the belief in God and loving the brothers and sisters and loving God as a result and that spinning around. This starts to make a little bit more sense. 
You see, John is cautioning his readers. He's cautioning us against that which would ruin all of it. You see, an idol is anything that would threaten to disrupt or destroy this cycle of belief and love. Believing that Jesus is the Christ, loving God, loving others, loving, believing, believing, loving, loving, believing, and so on and on and on and on. And John knows that anything that disrupts any part of this cycle will destroy the whole thing and will prevent the benefits of that from being realized. So he reminds his readers, he reminds us not to allow anything to come in the way of believing in Christ. Not to allow anything to come in the way of loving God and loving others. John reminds us that God alone is worthy. That his love for us is deep and unending. And that God's love leads us to love others around us at all times, in all circumstances. So what do we need to keep ourselves from? What are the idols that would threaten to disrupt the good that God has for us that John is describing? 